0: Well, welcome back, everyone. Um, My name is Jeff Rathke. I'm a senior fellow here at CSIS and deputy director of the Europe uh, program. Um, And I'll moderate uh, this uh, discussion in this session. We have the pleasure of welcoming yet another distinguished uh, speaker um, as we start uh, the second part of our session today. Now, if you look at your program, you might think we have three speakers. We have the commander of NATO's Allied Joint Force uh, Command in Naples. We have the Commander of U.S. Naval Forces uh, in Europe, and we have the Commander of U.S. Naval Forces Africa, and these people are all Admiral Mark Ferguson. (laughs) Now, I I won't list all the positions Admiral Ferguson has held. Um, If you count from the start of his time at the Naval Academy, he has spent over 40 years in uniform and still looks remarkably young for it. Um, Suffice it to say that his experience spans uh, the the globe, the Atlantic and the Pacific, Um, as a surface warfare officer in command at sea, um, as chief of legislative affairs for the Navy, um, as the Navy's chief personnel officer, in study at places like the Naval Postgraduate School and Harvard's Kennedy School, and in his most recent position before Naples as vice chief of naval operations. Now, Admiral Ferguson, as commander of both European and Africa Command naval forces, has responsibilities that range from pole to pole, from the Antarctic to the Arctic. So he's uniquely placed to speak uh, with us uh, today on national security issues in the Arctic, an area which uh, I would point out is designated as a key focus in the U.S. Unified Command Plan and which was highlighted just last week in the strategic guidance that was issued by Chief of Naval Operations, uh, Admiral John Richardson. Um, Those of us who have had the good fortune to hear uh, him speak in the past appreciate his gift for clarity in, an, in analyzing the strategic uh, environment and for explaining its implications. So uh, let us welcome to the podium Admiral Ferguson for his reflections on national security in the Arctic. Well,
1: thank you, it's great to be here, Heather. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm very glad that my schedule uh, being here could accommodate um, in doing that before I'm off tonight to head to Lithuania to do some discussions up there tomorrow. But thank you very much and I was pleased to see my great friend, mentor Senator John Warner, uh, who uh, promoted me to one star. So, Senator, you got a good track record here. You did very well and good choice uh, many years ago. So thank you very much and very great to see you here. Uh, Great friend of the Navy, Marine Corps and the Armed Services, thank you. I'd like to thank the uh, Center for Strategic International Studies for hosting this event and also recognize your leadership in bringing together such people, Senators Murkowski, King, uh, the Commandant of the Coast Guard, Paul Zunkoft, uh, in matters related to the Arctic. From my perspective in NATO, uh, as we sit and, and look at this, NATO has two oceans, one to the north and one to the south. And as we have seen in the Mediterranean, the boundaries of water that surround the military alliance can be a boundary. It can be a highway. It will be an arena for economic competition and growth. It's an operating area for military forces. Uh, It's an area for research and and understanding the science that goes with this planet and our environment. Uh, We are entering a period, I think, that, that where the flag of the nations is begin to follow the economic activity that is about to take place in that environment. When I personally think about the Arctic, I I think first of all, and I think in kind of in three concepts I'll talk about. Uh, The first one is the area of safety, the safety of personnel, the safety of operations, the remoteness, the harshness of the environment provides a challenge to ensure people are alive and as we begin to transit folks into that region to do economic exploration and research, ensuring their safety will become An increasing priority for us, those that are responders uh, across the spectrum in both the military and coast guards. I think the second element that I think of is protecting the environment. Um, We are starting to see the increase in commercial activity to both explore um, natural gas, oil, mineral deposits, uh, the fishing activities that take place up in that area and beginning to see exploration, attempts to go look for new new resources in there. Uh, The non-Arctic states beginning to assert their ability to use the Northern Sea Route for transit and increasing their shipping and trade. Uh, You may have noted this morning, I I don't want to repeat it but I wasn't here, is that in 2013 the Chinese sent their first merchant ship across uh, from China that shaved uh, nine days faster than the traditional path. And this past fall they did the first where they sent and did a return voyage through the northern route. And it offers a, a highway, as I said earlier, for an economic activity. And China was recently named as permanent observer status in the Arctic Council and has been a voice to ensure non-Arctic nations have access to that region. As we begin to look at the weather, we think the availability of the northern sea route will start to double from the two weeks or so that we now see to four weeks by 2020 uh, if the certain projections hold. And, and so that transit of merchant ships, as it begins to increase, will follow with a demand for maritime domain awareness as nations want to know who is transiting, where they are transiting, and for the uh, conditions I talked about earlier, is uh, safety and protection of the environment. The third area, and I rank it third, and my priority is, is really security. And it's, it's primarily an issue of both capability and capacity. Uh, for us to operate uh, in that environment. Probably the lower end of of our priority list of the many challenges that we face in the security realm. But what we are seeing is a growing pressure coming over time for increased operations and the militarization of that region um, in the Arctic. And and I observe that uh, as I mentioned that It can be an ocean on either side, a boundary or a highway. Um, uh, Russia in particular has begun to construct a series of bases along the northern part of the North Sea Route where they view it as a boundary. And these are militarized installations with air defenses, they see that as their northern boundary and if you look geographically to the United States, it does represent that in their perspective. And so they are constructing a series of bases both Fixed on land and some on the ice pack uh, for them to conduct uh, military operations on a presence that asserts their rights. They operate their submarine force up there extensively, so when I say it's a military operating area, it's principally in the submarine realm. The United States does that as well, and, and we uh, transit up there and operate, um, I wouldn't say routinely, but episodically to ensure that our systems, trainings, and capabilities are able to operate. Uh, The North Sea Fleet based on the northern coast of Russia is the largest and most modern of the Russian fleet and they are the most experienced in operating up there and we've seen an increase in um, the naval activity that has taken place uh, up in that region. Uh, In this past year we've seen the highest level of submarine activities uh, that we haven't seen since the mid 90s and so, this, this tendency and the militarization of security policy I think spills over a bit to the treatment of that area that they view as a boundary for their nation, um, not unexpected. Um, and from our standpoint, from the US roadmap, I think that we're in the nascent stages of developing both our capabilities, our capacities, and our thoughts. The Navy has published uh, a roadmap for the Arctic that talks about continuing to provide the capability and presence and surveillance and maritime domain awareness, principally through undersea and aviation. Uh, We'll continue to participate in exercises and scientific missions and personnel exchanges with our allies up in the region. And and look to increase by 2020 the number of personnel who have proficiency. As I go back to the safety issue, this is an environment that demands proficiency, practice, and performance, it is not a place to send the inexperienced and the untrained. And and so I see that in developing that cadre of units that are proficient in operating is probably the near-term piece. Um, I think as we look to the midterm in the roadmap, it talks about having the necessary training and personnel to respond to contingencies, think life-saving events or other missions affecting national security, and then, the long term and in the roadmap it listed beyond 2030 that we would even begin to think about supporting sustained operations. Now with the many challenges that we face, these are markers and milestones for the department to begin its planning effort. Um, but I think at the present time, uh, the investments will be limited primarily to uh, uh, episodic presence up there from the military, primarily air and subservice, and working very closely with our partners, the Canadians, Um, Iceland, Norway, Denmark, uh, other nations that have a much stronger vested interest and presence in the Arctic. So Heather, I hope that tees it up for you to to discuss where we are. I look forward to the questions and the discussions. Heather asked me to say we're gonna treat this as a conversation where we invite you all into our living room to talk. So look forward to our discussion after the questions. Thank you very much.
0: Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Admiral Ferguson, for those, uh, for those remarks. And uh, as we say now, we'll have a, a discussion, Uh, Heather Conley will, uh, will lead off uh, as, as discussant, and then we will take the conversation from there. So let me uh, pass the floor to you, Heather.
2: Well, Jeff, thank you, and let me all apologize. You've seen my face up here a little too much this morning. So my apologies for uh, chiming in again, but, CSIS has devoted about the last seven years of looking at the Arctic, and particularly looking at the Arctic security environment. Um, So that's why, as I said in the the very beginning, I thought this discussion was so important because we haven't allowed ourselves to talk about it. Um, Because maybe if we don't talk about it, maybe it's not an issue, maybe it's not Maybe it's something that we can we can manage. So I, I just I'm I'm going to be a little bit of a skunk at the picnic, if you'll forgive me, uh, Admiral Ferguson, because I, I am growing increasingly concerned mm-hmm. about uh, Russia's posture. So what I'm going to do, just for a few moments, sort of share some quick observations. Uh, and then want to start a conversation and then welcome you uh, into that conversation. So Admiral Ferguson, when you were last in Washington last year, you gave a a very forward-looking conversation about Russian military activities, obviously what we've seen over the last two years, Ukraine, uh, previous to that, Georgia. Uh, and you, you sort of talked about this uh, as an arc of steel. Mm-hmm. And it was such a fabulous sort of mental mm-hmm. image of this. And my challenge was, we had just p- produced a report in August that looked at the Russian Arctic and we called it the new ice curtain. And a few days later, I was asked to testify before the Senate Armed Service Committee mm-hmm. about what Russia's activities, mm-hmm. particularly in the Arctic. So I had to, I have to confess, I stole from you. So I said, there is a steel component but there's the ice component. So I, in my testimony, I said I think uh, the Kremlin is deciding to construct uh, a a curtain of ice, which Mm -hmm. begins the north and Mm -hmm. then goes to steel as it goes Mm -hmm. uh, the former, uh, the post-Soviet space and then down to the uh, uh, eastern Mediterranean. And the day that I was testifying is when uh, the Russian submarine launched cruise missiles from the Caspian Mm -hmm. to hit Syrian targets. So it was a very powerful uh, moment. So again, just just a few options observations on Russia's uh, activities in the Arctic, we tend to look at the incredibly increased amount of activity over the last uh, two or three years, but to be honest with you, we started to see a change in Russia's posture going back to the 2006, 2007, 2008 time frame, and I don't mean the ever-famous quoted uh, you know, planning of the uh, titanium flag on the floor of mm-hmm. the seabed. I do not mean that as the, the reference. Mm-hmm. But we began to see where in the 2006, 2007 uh, time frame, Russia began to uh, uh, began regular patrols Over the Arctic and under the Arctic, we had not seen that since the end of the Cold War. And really that's when the outlines of Russia's military modernization plan began known. So let's fast forward to, you know, seven years later, again, just focused on the Arctic. So the Russian government has announced announced a new strategic command for the Arctic, uh, which is the Northern Fleet United Strategic Command. They have a very aspirational um, plan to uh, have 50 military bases by 2020 along the Russian Arctic. That's aspirational. Uh, At least they wanted 15 operational by the end of last year. Um, They have uh, the the concentration of their sea-based nuclear forces, 81% or so, is concentrated in the, the north, in the northern fleet. Uh, They have increased their special forces in the Arctic by 30%. The announcement of their 10 search and rescue centers along the Northern Sea Route, which is extremely welcome because we are going to need that infrastructure, they announced that, in fact, these centers will be dual use, so there will be military applications for that. They've enhanced their radar stations. Uh, and I think, to me, the, the the part that has really caused me the greatest concern is the increase, substantial increase in operational tempo of their exercising in the Arctic. They are exercising, uh, Uh, massive retaliatory exercises. They're exercising with their nuclear potential. We don't exercise that. Uh, And just in March of last year alone, which to me is sort of the, you know, sort of the prime example, we saw where Russian forces, 45,000 forces, 15 submarines, 41 warships, 110 aircraft performed a SNAP exercise to full combat readiness. SNAP meaning no notification. And we notify exercises so there is never a chance of misunderstanding. Um, And the fact that they could go to full combat readiness, that level of complexity with that much. uh, I think you could probably suggest that NATO right now, even though with the readiness action plan and the uh, the very high readiness task force, is straining to develop that much rapid mobilization and that level of complexity. that's a lot, right, over the last uh, few years. And so we scratch our head and go, well, what does that mean? What, what's, what's the point they're trying to prove for that? That's a lot of attention. That's a lot of focus by uh, the very senior leadership of the Russian government. Um, I, I have a couple of explanations. Uh, and our members our audience may have uh, some other thoughts on this as well. Clearly, um, there's an exertion of sovereignty, your border question. And they have a lot of border to cover. Russia has over 50% of the Russian coastline. And they have very ambitious economic plans for the northern sea route, energy development. The Arctic is Russia's future resource base, no doubt about it. So that is natural, and that is understandable. Um, But I I think what we're seeing over the last few years goes beyond the normal exertion of sovereignty, it goes beyond obviously economic development potential. There's a couple of elements here that concern me the most, first and foremost, The nationalistic rhetoric from the Kremlin has now crept fully into the Arctic, and that was not the case several years ago. It was the territory of dialogues, it was the cooperation. Um, And now all of of a sudden we have Deputy Prime Minister Dmitry Rogozin, uh, very nationalistic rhetoric about it is ours, we will take it. Tanks don't need visas. Now, I know that's very bombastic and that's made for effect, and I appreciate that. That's that's what that's designed for. But when you open that avenue, that it becomes nationalistic in perspective, then that creates the possibility where cooperation becomes increasingly difficult if you continue to use nationalism. I think, again, what the, 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 the dramatic changes in Russia's military posture to me, and I'd love your thoughts on this, is really we're looking at now a more significant anti-access aerial denial posture. Now that gets us back to the Cold War era, where the Arctic was very much, and the Russians had a very robust A2AD uh, strategy. So presence, as we talked about in the previous panel, is influence, and they're certainly returning their presence as they had it in the Soviet Union, but is that to deny NATO presence and again the uptick in submarine activity that we've seen in the North Sea, in the Greenland, Iceland, UK gap, we haven't seen that type of activity. Is that more about the NATO and A2AD um, or what does that uh, say to you? Clearly there, this is about global power projection capabilities and the Arctic is strategic location. We knew that from the uh, from the Cold War era. Uh, it exists today, which the US doesn't view it that way, but Russia certainly does. And this is an important element of their power, global power projection, as is their nuclear status and their nu- their growing nuclear capabilities. It reminds us they are a great power, a great nuclear power. And all of this has, you know, it it does what it's designed to do, intimidate, uh, demonstrate power, robustness. um, And and I think finally we see that very frequently I think NATO tends to focus on the Baltic Sea region, the Black Sea region, and we fail to understand that the Arctic for Russia, is a total theater of operations, so activities in the Baltic uh, as a continuing operating theater includes the the Barents Sea. So I think there is a lot of things going on there, and my own sense of what the U.S. should do or think about, um, certainly we need NATO. To start thinking about what these changes are, even to have a conversation about them. Previously that was not allowed. One NATO member um, did not believe this was an appropriate subject for, for NATO to discuss. And now with a change of, of government, maybe that will change. That NATO can have uh, our northern neighbor, maybe that can have a, a change in view, because I think NATO needs to understand it has two oceans and there's some changes that are that are going on. And we need a full assessment of what these enhanced Russian capabilities in the Arctic mean. Do they mean anything? Should we be concerned or should we not be concerned? We have to have a robust assessment. Certainly even the submarine activity, I think, bears that understanding as well as our understanding of of the nuclear doctrine. So in the National Defense Authorization um, Act, uh, Senator Sullivan of Alaska had recommended that there would be an operational plan for the Arctic. And Secretary Carter said, yeah, I think that's a pretty good idea. I don't know where that is right now. But I think, again, that helps us understand, should we be thinking in a different way uh, about what's going on in the Arctic? And then finally, I wonder, provocatively, if it is time to rethink the unified command plan. So in 2011, uh, it was uh, reconfigured to have uh, the European command have operational responsibilities. Pacific command was sort of taken out of the the responsibility, um, and then uh, NORTHCOM had advocacy responsibilities. I think we may need to perhaps make some readjustments, but I think the assessment of of the potential challenge would have to then be brought into bear, whether there does need to be uh, a a reflection of that in a revised uh, unified command plan. So I told you I was going to be a little provocative, uh, but I'm a little more concerned uh, about these changes and understanding what they mean, so I'll let you respond to that.
1: Oh, boy, where do I begin? Um, The... uh, uh, I have three pages of notes I already, how they go. The, I'm sorry. Uh, you're, you're challenging me. The, um, I, think the, I think what you hit upon is a trend that we're seeing um, as Russia writes their doctrine and their national military strategy, their, their, their national strategies, they have identified NATO and, and the U.S., in particular, as existential threats to Russia. Now, when you start at the point of identifying an existential threat, you say that, okay, that is is destined to topple, you know, our government, to threaten the nation as a whole. And as you look at their isolation uh, politically, uh, the economic hardship of oil falling from $108 a barrel down to $30 a barrel to affect their economy, I mentioned diplomatic but in economic, and the sanctions and the, the hold they're taking on them and they look uh, in the direction of NATO, they see the European Union, they see their former countries that are now members of NATO being admitted and you, and you see this and they, and they say, we need to construct um, defenses against that and you see information campaigns and the way that's managed in the country, you see this construction and, and the arc of steel discussion came to me as we started looking at Kaliningrad, what's happening in Crimea, the base in Syria now, if you just draw that circle. But it's really a line that projects uh, what we call anti-access air denial. It's very strong air defenses designed to negate their perception of NATO's advantages in a military campaign, principally um, advanced air and precision munitions. And this is along with uh, our other strike capabilities. So this militarization of their security policy um, has spilled over into the construction of these defenses along the Arctic. And so um, you know we, we look at it as this is the evolution that the government has put in place in order to proceed. Um, within NATO, we are spending a lot of time looking at the implications of uh, uh, advanced defense systems that essentially cover NATO territory into Poland and into Norway and the Baltic countries. And, and how do we respond to that? We're looking, as you mentioned, the SNAP exercises that the goal in NATO now in, this, in what we call adaptation is to make the alliance more responsive. We, we are coming out of a period where our force generation models took us 120, 180 days to generate forces in any number. And so we're looking now at being able to mobilize some sort of forces in two to four days. Um, you mentioned these large SNAP exercises, they do them frequently. They're directed from uh, central control out of Moscow and they mobilize and move very quickly. And again, you look at the defensive systems, the mobilization, and then having advanced cyber, um, anti-satellite weapons, the things that deny the Western way of waging military campaigns, it's designed from a defensive mindset to preclude uh, our maneuver and ability in that space. And so I see the Arctic as they say that's a vulnerable boundary and we're going to lay those systems in. NATO responds in the terms of uh, the, what we call uh, adaptation where we start to increase our responsiveness, get the, you know, the VJTF, these other forces, but we have not really looked at the north and, and have not done extensive planning, principally because the member nations have not reached a consensus on what the posture should be. They are, you know, we, NATO moves with all 28 agree and at present not all 28 uh, have reached a consensus on whether there is a military role or whether we should even begin to plan for one in the future. So I think that area is right uh, for discussion. Uh, as I mentioned in my other, you know, if you look at the roadmap, these are actions that start to build initial capacity but really don't affect uh, any change in terms of a critical mass until 20, mid 2020s, 2030 time frame so there's a question from us is what's the level of investment that we want to make given all the other challenges that we have uh, in the world and I would say the uh, uh, last point which you know, is of most concern to me is that it, is it, um, um, the increase in activity shows a proficiency and investment and a desire to make this contested space, uh, it may be driven by trade, it may be given by sovereignty concerns, it may be given by driven by uh, their desire to uh, their assertiveness over the space but underlying it, if you look at a lot of Russian writings and discussions it's it 's let 's remake the security order that 's in existence right now that, that uh, we don 't think it's or they don 't believe it 's favorable to them they believe it 's at a disadvantage and that You know, the writings and the discussions coming out of there are in the mindset of breaking out from the constraints of economic sanctions, political isolation, military disadvantage, and and the Arctic is a piece that provides them an avenue to do that.
2: Um, Absolutely, Admiral Ferguson. I think there is certainly a return. Russia had so diminished its presence Mm -hmm. in its north. This is absolutely a rebuilding. Mm -hmm. Uh, perspective, how they many times rebuild is through military expression. Exactly. So some of this is, is attempts at economic development, but through a military expression. Exactly, and it's not expression. at the levels,
1: I mean, let's be clear, it's not at the levels right. that we saw in the Cold War, but it's, it's one of these things where, you know, we're ramping up, or they're ramping up in the activity and the investments that they're seeing driven by these economic and sovereignty Absolutely. concerns.
2: And I think what makes this very challenging for mm-hmm. analysts, at least it's challenging for me, there I call it the maddening duality, meaning that just as uh, uh, the commandant was talking about the Arctic Coast Guard Forum, and that you had the head of the Federal Security Bureau there, and it's right. very collaborative and cooperative, mm-hmm. uh, yes, and at the same time, they can be very provocative in enhancing their security, right. and we have to deal with both sides of that coin it's you can't put them you know in one camp they exist right. in in both spaces which is a, both an avenue to keep the dialogue going which is right. critical and the transparency and making sure we understand snap exercises that are not preludes mm-hmm. to more but at the same time that can't pr- the cooperation part can't prevent us from addressing behaviors like non notification of um, exercises, turning off military aircraft transponders while flying in very crowded northern European airspace, those type of things, yeah. you can't exclude yeah. both behaviors. Yeah,
1: I, I've spent time was recently in Iceland and recently in uh, and, uh, talking to our allies in Norway and that point about the increased military flights, they're seeing those in Iceland just as you identify without transponders flying through commercial air routes. So that, that's the concern that they have. I, I would. Uh, also offer, and I don't know if it was discussed, we have not discussed the European Union, and there are some in the quarters that believe that, that this is not a NATO role, and so there may be a discussion of is there a European Coast Guard potentially on the horizon? Is there a discussion about a European force that can address the more economic and uh, diplomatic aspects of this as opposed to uh, a militarization? I think that's a point that, that some in Europe would offer is the more appropriate route.
2: Yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting discussion. Just to one other uh, sentiment I'll offer you, and then I, I really would love everyone to, to jump into the discussion. Uh, speaking of doctrine, uh, we have seen now the Arctic is mentioned in not only Russia's new military doctrine, its amended maritime strategy, um, its. Uh, I, what you referred to is the NATO has now been de- de- determined as a threat in Russia's new national security strategy that was just released on December the 31st. So I, I think many times we fall into the trap uh, when senior ref- Russian officials provide statements, we go, oh, they're doing that for domestic purposes. Mm-hmm. They issue formal doctrine like, well, yes, but that's for, that we sometimes don't take it on face value that these are changes and they are increasing proficiency. And as I said, for me, it's not to be overly alarmist. It's to understand what these changes mean and then do they require an adjustment in our approach and strategy? Do they require a reinforced dialogue on transparency, notification, all those things that I think we thought we had agreement with our Russian colleagues and that seems to not be the case anymore.
1: Um, Yeah, I think an important point for all of us, and I certainly go back, is to read the source documents and the doctrine. Because when when I go back into 2007-2008, start to read the military doctrine and statements, and then start to map it against the investments, the exercises, the proficiency, and the operational tempo, um, I, I like to tell my staff they're doing what they told us. They're doing exactly how they laid it out. So that's the first point. And then the second piece is, is in our discussions, I we had the opportunity. Senator Warner was very instrumental in Inc. C. Uh, we had the first Inc. C. meeting in two years in my headquarters in Naples uh, this past year with the Russians. It was very professional. It was very, you know, and we can have professional relationships. And and in in us, when we work as professionals, we, we're not having any contact with their military right now after events in the Ukraine, that's the decision. And that lack of uh, contact I think hurts us in some degrees that we don't have those discussions Um, as we did for INC-C this year uh, where we resolved some interactions. And and our interactions have been professional at sea and I want to make sure that that's that's clear. There isn't a a tension that we're seeing between our naval units as we operate in proximity next to each other. Um, But we have the tendency when we deal with them that uh, we look at our engagements as being transformational. That somehow they will change their values and their strategic aspirations based on us talking. And I would tell you they view it as transactional. Mm -hmm. That their view is they have a strategic aim that they're out toward and so what concessions can we get or they get um, and view it purely as transactional. So I think as we approach this it's important to know what their strategic aims are, be very clear about our own, and then craft our engagements and discussions
0: appropriately.
2: That's a really great point. All right, Jeff, I'm going to be quiet.
0: (laughs) Okay, uh, thank you. Um, And and we'll gather some some questions uh, here in just a second, but if I can use the uh, prerogative of the chair and ask one question at the start. Um, uh, Admiral Ferguson, you and I had the opportunity to talk for a minute uh, before you came out here, and one of the things you said that uh, stuck with me was, Know, the challenge for the US of moving over the last few years from a, a situation of immediacy where we had combat operations in multiple theaters to which we needed to respond right away uh, to the longer term um, uh, planning and efficiency that is required in um, in uh, the changed changing environment and i wanted to expand that idea to our to the context of our allies and partners and uh, what role do, do you see for, um, whether or not it's in a, in a strictly NATO context, but for our uh, partners and allies such as Canada, Norway, Denmark, um, Iceland, UK, what kinds of capabilities and activities do you look for uh, and do you see as essential for addressing security, um, again, in the high north and the Arctic? Uh,
1: great point. Um, uh, and, and to follow up that discussion, when, when I looked at the transformation that the U.S. Navy is coming out of, is that we spent a period in our country's history focused very much on, on two land campaigns in Iraq and, and Afghanistan, and the, the system of decision making and budget allocation and resources were necessarily driven um, to that environment and addressing those needs and winning those campaigns. And so we're in this transition period now as we've drawn down our presence um, in that area and reduced the forces and, and looking, the, the forces most in demand are naval forces. And if you, I worked very closely with the first sea lord in the United Kingdom and you'll notice in the most recent defense review, there's a line in areas that we need P-8 patrol aircraft to go, return to the high north because they divested of those in 2010 in their last defense review and so that was a discussion. Um, Recently I've had um, our allies from Norway, uh, I visited Iceland and there is a concern that um, we don't have domain awareness and so you're seeing investments on the part of those nations to regain that domain awareness be it in air or ship platforms uh, Norway in particular and the United Kingdom in particular. Uh, you see Canada reinvigorating her surface fleet and, and reconstruction uh, of, some, of a new class of ships and as well as the other investments they're making. So I, I think for those nations that are aware of um, what's happening, uh, you're seeing their activity. Um, other allies of ours uh, are operating their submarines in northern waters now too um, as well. And, and so we're collaborating in those efforts. So the investment, again, I go back to, it's really about the maritime domain awareness, understanding what's happening in the environment, and responding, responding to what we see as this increased uh, activity. So um, you know, the allies and partners, I think, can make those investments. I, I remain uh, concerned, as the Secretary General NATO talks about, is reaching the 2% investment in defense and then 20% in acquisition, we only have three, I think three to four nations in NATO that are meeting that target now. And so I think um, what this challenge presents uh, is an opportunity to, to reinvigorate some of those investments uh, in meeting the commitment from Wales.
0: Okay, great, thank you. Uh, we'll take some questions now, and uh, so we'll call and wait for the microphone, identify yourself, and so forth. Um, we'll start with Ian, and then we'll come forward. Thank you. Mark's good to see you. Ian's great to see you. I'd like to ask all three of you, how you see, if you see any linkage between Russia's militarization of the Arctic and its claims for territory in the Arctic. Heather was talking about the potential to develop an A2AD zone. The Admiral was talking about Russia's effort to shape the security order. It strikes me there might be a linkage. And think about what happens in 2020, 2025 when the international community makes decisions on those claims, will it be able to enforce those claims uh, in the face of an extensively militarized Russian Arctic frontier? Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Uh, Thanks and we'll come, we'll come down uh, to the front um, and uh, take, uh, take a couple of questions together.
3: Um, Admiral, Andrea Shalal with Reuters, Um, I wanted to ask you about the sort of financial piece of this. Sorry, Andrea Shalal with Reuters, I wanted to ask you, Admiral, about the financial piece of this. So, to what extent do you think that the Navy's Arctic roadmap is going to have to be revised to take account of the new and changing realities and, and when? And also earlier today, we talked about the need for icebreakers and um, and the you know large funding that's required for that. To what extent is there some growing recognition on the part of the Navy that this icebreaking capability may be necessary even for military capabilities? To what extent, you know, is there any kind of willingness to share in the cost of that? Thanks.
0: Okay, great. And we'll we'll take uh, we'll take one more uh, on. No, we didn't. Have, no, we didn't have. Okay, we'll take we'll take one more here.
4: Um. Uh, Caitlin Antrim again. Um, from 1900, the U.S. Uh, grand strategy toward the Russian Empire, the First Republic, uh, the Soviet Union was based on containment and enclosure of the heartland and it was possible because of the ice caps, so that 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 was a a valid strategy for for an entire century. Um, I think what many Russian strategists see is that's no longer the case, that they are now a two ocean country, which is not that they have to go out and use that as a base for conquering, but it's their economic lifeline in two directions, and I think it became very apparent to them as sanctions were put on from the European side, and now they're permitting Chinese investment in Sabeta Port, they're permitting ownership of ships that Russia was was going to build to transfer energy. So we're seeing that heartland develop and enter within 10 years into the global uh, economic uh, system. So what's our strategy then? If if containment is not possible, do we just modify containment? Do we find some way to balance collaboration and, and competition? Um, or do you see some other, something else on the horizon that would replace that, that strategy of the past?
0: OK, thank you. Um, Admiral Ferguson. Heather, they're letting you
1: off on this one. Um, <laughs> no,
2: I'll come back. No,
1: no. I think uh, so to uh, I'll link Ian's question and this one a little bit to discuss it, but I think um, in terms of the militarization of the strategy as well as, um, you know, the claims, um, my personal view is that I think Russia is watching what China does in the East China Sea with the nine dash line and is working to define what the continental shelf looks like and to establish a claim and declare it sovereign. and That's what, you know, would be a judgment in terms of a basing structure Uh, mapping activity, really focused, as Heather said, on the economic piece of this. Um, And I think that for us, the grand strategy operating up to, uh, and I think our hope is that it still returns, is engagement and a Europe whole free and peace and Russia a part of it. And and that um, at some point, a break happened where Russia saw it was competition with NATO. And began to act in that manner, as opposed to being a cooperative partner for the for Europe. I think the ultimate solution has to be a rules-based international order that allows these disputes to be resolved either through UNCLOS or through an appropriate mechanism, as opposed to um, uh, the use of the military instrument. That's my personal view on on how that would work. Uh, and I'll.
2: That's what she was really looking for. I'm very
1: much in favor of the Law of Sea Convention, and, uh, and I think all the CNOs prior, and, and, and as well as, as uh, you know from my perspective, it hurts our position as a country not to be a signatory of that, because we need the rules-based order, particularly in a resolution these disputes both off China as well as in the future in the Arctic, uh, as well as recognizing the role of the, the Arctic Council and the role of uh, the nations that uh, are up there. Um, and on the, I'll, I'll briefly touch on the icebreaker question. Um, and uh, uh, I would say that I would defer that judgment to the Chief of Naval Operations, but I would I would suspect that uh, we would view that more of a Coast Guard or a national investment than it would be for a military investment. And I'll give it to you. Yeah, I,
2: I, yeah I'll, ju- I'll just, okay. oh, you want to talk about it? Just Go to ahead, throw my uh, two cents and maybe come back yeah. around. I, just to, to pull on your earlier uh, question, your, Jeff, um, you know in many ways the United States is returning intellectually to Europe Mm -hmm. Uh, after 15 years where Europe was uh, a coalition generating training ground to deploy forces in Afghanistan and Iraq. uh, The annexation of Crimea and the uh, invasion of Ukraine has actually returned the U.S. much more fully to Europe whether that's Atlantic Resolve. Uh, and it's also returned NATO to its founding role of deterrence and collective defense. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a totally different mm-hmm. uh, mindset that I think we're, we're struggling with. Ian, on your question of claims, uh, you know, the Russian Federation has been absolutely perfect in its implementation of exactly what the Law of the Sea Treaty requires it. It mm-hmm. submits scientific de- uh, data to extend its outer continental shelf. Um, it, it was the first country to do so in 2001. The article 76 committee said there's just not sufficient information. We need more. They just resubmitted again. Mm-hmm. It's been perfect, flawless, uh, no questions. But my my but to that sentence, it gets back to my concerns about uh, Deputy Prime Minister Rogozin and nationalism. Because when you inject nationalism into this, claims become more spiritual become more civilizational um, and you know you cannot preclude it i think it's highly unlikely because what the russian government understood from when it, it it reached its historic demarcation agreement with norway in 2010 was economic development will not happen if there is contested space or confusion when you clarify economic development comes because there's clarity on who owns what So it would go against Russia's interest to to be conflictual or do unilateral declarations because economic development, uh, multilateral development would evaporate. But at the same time, if you are a regime that continues to have to seek external activities to justify uh, declining economic strength and popular unrest, could this be an option? Potentially, of course. It's a it's a wiggle room kind of thing. But right now, I would be very clear to say the Russian government has done everything appropriate in submitting claims and following the system. Uh, but I think it, it just has a, a little bit of, a, of an asterisk. I have to say, and I'm, I'll be the skunk again, um, my frustration with the Navy's Arctic Roadmap is, is it, it's a climate change task force. It looks at how the opening will eventually happen. And it sets itself 2030, 2040, we'll think about that later. I actually think the Navy has a much greater role in thinking about the GIUK gap, has a lot more to think about, oh, we may have to think about a more fulsome strategy in the North than we've ever had to comp- uh, contemplate. That's where I'd like to see, and that is where financial decisions obviously on submarine activity and, and and focus, I think that's where the Navy is missing out. And certainly the Navy does not want its budget to go towards funding an icebreaker. Totally appreciate that, but it, it will be um, a national asset. And uh, I think there has to be some broader strategic thinking within the Naval community about what we're seeing in the North right now. That would be my humble recommendation.
1: So to go to your question, I think that the um, uh, the roadmap will be driven by, I think, for us our principal consideration will be the operating environment south of the North Cape of Norway as you transit into the Barents. That from that point down is where the operational environment is where you will see uh, greater investment, greater operations. Uh, when you get to the high north, above that in the Arctic, uh, I think the roadmap will be sustained uh, for some period of time unless driven by other
0: events. Okay, we're going to take a second uh, round of questions. Um, so uh, once again, we've got uh, mics. We'll start, we'll start on the left uh, here.
5: Um not so much a question, but it's sort of an add-on comment. Heather's right that the Russians have been very careful to follow the procedures for filing claims for the extended continental shelf issue under UNCLOS. But there's other kinds of claims, and this goes back to the question about freedom of navigation that was actually posed to the previous panel. And uh, in a different respect, uh, uh, which has to do with whether the Russians, Uh, are correct in considering certain portions of the Northern Sea Route to be their own internal waters as opposed to international waters, they are not being quite so immaculate in terms of sticking to the letter of the law. And to answer that question that was posed earlier about this issue, that is a sleeper issue and potentially a very serious one. We have seen what the freedom of navigation issue has done in the East and South China Seas and I actually am involved in maintaining a report on that as a part of my work. And so if we are now going to get into uh, an issue of uh, freedom of navigation in the Northern Sea Route That's something that the Navy actually wrote about as early as 2009, that that was an issue waiting to happen, and we may be getting closer to that. And it's also one that brings the Canadians in because we have an agreement to disagree currently with Canada about the status of the waters through the Canadian archipelago. It's the Canadian view that those are internal waters. It's our view that those are international waters. If we are going to get into some kind of disagreement with the Russians about the status of the northern sea route, it might help if we get our ducks in order between the United States and Canada as to the status of the internal waters through the Canadian archipelago. So these things are all linked. And I just wanted to point out that the Russians might be very careful and immaculate in some ways, but not in terms of uh, the claims they have made regarding what they consider to be internal waters through parts of the Northern Sea Route.
0: Okay, um, thank you. Uh, we'll, we'll then take, uh, take another uh, comment in the, in the back. Of the Yep, on this side. Just bear with us for a second for the mic.
4: Max Meiselish, congressional intern. Um, According to a war game published by the Naval War College in 2011, quote, strategic and operational planners will simply need to accept that certain areas in the Arctic remain off limits to U.S. warships unless the commander is willing to accept risks, the ice recedes away from the area of interest, or ships are produced with additional ice strengthening, end quote. Given that the U.S. will have a period of two to six years with no operational icebreaker capability, how can the U.S. best posture itself in the near term?
0: Okay, thank you, and if we have, uh, and then on the, on the, on the left please, we'll take, take a third question and then answer them uh, in a bundle.
1: Hi, John King. I'm not affiliated with anybody, but I'm a retired Navy, and know, budget analyst, so I always see the financial side. But since the uh, goal of the Navy is to win the war, but basically preserve the peace before that, and since I see the law of the sea is mainly a territorial type agreement, do you see the potential that maybe some part of the the Arctic should be off limit, like a sort of a Switzerland kind of situation where yes, we have your 200 mile boundary, but there's some common area that is for, I guess, you know, a United Nations kind of thing where you you can't go in there for economic development, therefore you lessen any potential uh, uh, conflict that then is supported militarily at a future point?
0: All right, thank you. Admiral Ferguson, turn to turn to you.
1: I, I think for the question on posture ourselves in the near term, it, it's for us to continue operating the subsurface forces up there and, and to build our proficiency with the aircraft maritime domain awareness to oversee um, the commercial activity where appropriate uh, in flights, and it's also to work uh, closely with our allies. I think that uh, we have to be respectful. You know, my view is the rule-based order is the best way to manage this, but respectful of our allies and working with them, be it Canada, uh, Norway, Iceland, other, other Denmark, others in particular, and I think that's an important part to posture us in the near to midterm. As I mentioned, um, as we look at the fiscal piece, the other security challenges, uh, our focus is not gonna be in the high north, but we are gonna focus on those areas kind of the GI-UK over to Norway areas in south for us. Um, on, on the, on. Uh, well, let me get to that in a second. Let me answer this other question. Um, the, um, um, the, 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 the part about making a part of the Arctic Uh, off-limits. I I guess I'm out of my depth on that one and I'll I'll let you take that one. Okay? (laughs) Go
3: ahead.
2: This is where I I think the the question of of governance and there the Arctic is the international legal framework is certainly the law of the sea so we, we have uh, understanding agreements and how that works there is some expression of creating a regional seas agreement for the central Arctic that could be prohibitive of certain activities economic activities so the five Arctic coastal states recently agreed to place a moratorium on commercial fishing in the central Arctic now there are no fish right now in the central arctic but it's it's a you know there's a there's an element that we believe needs a lot more scientific research that those fishing stocks will travel north as waters warm so it it was a a preventative proactive uh, activity to try to uh, both limit potentially harmful activity until we have the science until we understand what's going on Um, some have made sort of a a comparison it's not a great one on the Antarctic treaty system uh, you know which Is a prohibitive type of governance structure, you know, prohibit military activities, prohibit certain perspectives of economic development. I don't see that happening in the Arctic, quite frankly. We have, you know, the Arctic has four million people uh, within it. Uh, They need economic growth. They need to have sustainable uh, practices and environmental practices. So I don't see it as a prohibitive uh, type of opportunity, but I see it as a very Slow, methodical, making sure we have the best science and understanding uh, to move forward, and that's what's going to be so interesting when the polar, the IMO polar code uh, comes into effect uh, January 1st, which will be uh, expensive, uh, regulatory on the ballast and all the pollutants that come in. You know, it, it will go slow, but. You know, banning military activities, our missile defense architecture is in the Arctic, Russia's strategic nuclear deterrent is in the Arctic, it's already there. We can't prohibit it. I think we just have to enhance transparency uh, and certainly uh, in, in, in make, uh, I what I'd like to see our Russian colleagues understand is we cannot have the cooperation we all seek unless basic rules are followed. And uh, and your point about transactional versus transformational, that should be on a bumper sticker because we tend to think we just talk enough and repeat ourselves enough, it will change something. They're seeking something out of it. And, and we, that's why we keep, oops, excuse me, we keep doing uh, doing this, but we, the transaction I'd like with the Russians. you have to notify military activities. You, in the Arctic, you have to keep the basic standards of safety and security or we can't cooperate as much as we would like in the Arctic.
0: Anything further you wanted to add on that? No, I did yeah. Did you have a question? Yeah, she had a question in the front row.
1: Do,
2: do you want to make
3: I just wondered if you could clarify your point about the you know the operational area of, um, of concern and if that is in fact in response to the sort of increased operational level that you're seeing by the russian sure. submarines and then yeah. just one one kind okay. of additional question the on that note you said that it's not at the level that you were seeing during the cold war but I believe at the beginning of your remarks you said that you're seeing increased levels that have not been seen since. So
1: it- uh, since 95, mm-hmm. so that's post-Cold War period. So um, uh, I'll clarify that. If, if we look back that following the end of the Cold War and into the 90s, that we saw a, a kind of a reduction in naval activity writ large across the Soviet Union as the as, uh, uh, change in governments and change in investments and military readiness posture Happened through that 90s period, and in beginning at around 2005 to 2008, we began to see a resurgence in both the number of underway days, uh, construction programs of brand new submarines, or building a new SSBN, new attack submarines, uh, improvement in their proficiency and capability and performance, and so we've seen this escalation from about 2005 up to now, and it's it's in the last three years, it's probably. Um, intensified and in two areas one is as I mentioned their largest fleet uh, is in the Barents Sea and so they do all their local operations and exercises there so we've seen an increase in that activity as they build their proficiency and then the trend that we've seen in the last couple years has been increased numbers of submarines operating south of the GI UK Norway line over there Um, and, and, and so it's in response to both. When I talked about the question about priorities, what I meant was is that our operational responsibilities are really related to NATO and, and working with uh, uh, our allies there. And so that tends to, to focus our activities on that area from Iceland, UK, Norway, south for the military aspect. All
0: right, thank you. I think we have time for one last round of questions. Um, So, uh, if we have any, uh, we have, I think, uh, on the right here, um, the gentleman who hasn't asked a question yet, and then we'll come this way. Uh, Thank you, Ryan Brown, CNN. Uh, I had a question about, again, on the freedom of navigation issue, uh, which was brought up, and I I really, it was interesting your South China Sea comparison um, and how the U.S. has conducted exercises of military nature to confirm uh, freedom of navigation, um, would that kind of exercise be considered to maintain Arctic freedom of navigation? All right, thank you. And then we'll, uh, we'll take, uh, we've got one uh, on, the, on the left, and then we'll come back to you in the middle.
6: All right, Carl Hibbets from the Applied Physics Lab up in, uh, up in Columbia. So I want to pull the string a little bit on, on maritime domain awareness and the um, availability and need for more persistent surveillance and communications in that region. Uh, this panel here and several speakers have consistently alluded to the difficulty of operating in the Arctic and the lack of um, ability to understand what is happening to even the extent of a, of a cruise ship showing up unannounced. So it seems to be a prevalent lack of, of or some or operational awareness of what is occurring in the Arctic. So I'd like some comment on, what is needed to improve our capabilities in terms of communication and ISR or surveillance? And to our current assets such as, as PH, would, would, they, would that suffice or would you need something more in order to achieve uh, what we need in the, um, in the changing Arctic?
0: Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, we'll take a uh, question here. In the...
7: Hello, uh, my name is Samira Daniels, Ramsey Decisions uh this is for admiral uh ferguson uh I'm glad that Heather highlighted the transactional versus uh transformational um, it was uh it, it was uh your to your credit i um the 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 specific question I have is do you think that the source for your nuanced uh understanding of it is a result of the kind of deliberation that goes on in Europe, or uh, is it it enveloped into the the way U.S. Navy um, uh, negotiates these with Russia? I mean, uh, I I know it's kind of a broad question, but I think it's an important one in developing the negotiating strategies uh, with Russia, and I don't think it's developed enough.
0: And if we could take one last gentleman the, uh, on the aisle. Yes, yes sir, uh, Commander Robert Haidt. Uh, I got a question for actually for the entire uh, panel, and that has to do with uh, recently the CNO released um, a new uh, uh, design for maintaining maritime superiority. And in that it lays out four uh, lines of effort. One of those is expanding and maintaining, or I should say uh, expanding and strengthening partner engagements. So in addition to come kind of this, this more standard um, lines on interagency and international partners. It lays out two uh, two of those efforts on uh, academia and then the commercial aspect. So I would kind of ask, besides forums like this, um, where is the Navy going with regards to engagement on on academia and commercial for issues of security? All right, thank you. Admiral. Um,
1: I'll take the question I like first. uh,
2: Your prerogative.
1: I have to say that my thinking has been shaped in Europe, and and it's been shaped by allies. I was at Atlantic Bruca, and I gave a discussion up there. Wolfgang Ischinger invited me, and we had a discussion with them. I'm, I'm leaving tonight to fly to Lithuania for the snow conference tomorrow. Um, and and they live next to Russia. They interact with Russia, and, and um, I think that that uh, their desire for Europe whole free and at peace, and what I see is um, a personal observation. Um, I get a greater depth of analysis and discussion outside um, the the Beltway in terms of the strategic implications of decision making and issues, and and it's 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 really part of my own education, I think, and we tend to approach it, you know, as a military individual from you know, a military operational perspective, a U.S. perspective, and serving in NATO, this is my second time in NATO, that, um, uh, and in fact, I encourage U.S. officers to do that because uh, until you begin to, to uh, understand your allies' perspective, their history, and uh, the economic pressures they're under, the sanctions hurt them as well, and, and what I find is that, that there are second and third order effects and nuances to the discussions that, uh, that, that I often miss in my own educational bringing, upbringing. And, and I just think that's, that, so if you ask me where it came from, it came from my discussions and participation in forums and debates uh, in Europe. Um, on the uh, um, academia and, and commercial and strengthening partners question, um, I think that uh, what we're finding is that the security challenges are evolving and what i like in Europe to be is a non-linear environment uh, the days of a military escalation that results in force being generated in a campaign and then you know some denouement at the end uh, those days are over and we're now in non-linear escalation we're now in 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 when you know you may take a military action but it comes out in response, as an information campaign, or a cyber campaign, or an economic sanction, and and you're seeing that that uh, escalation happens in domains across a broad spectrum, on one side or the other, um, as opposed to purely the military domain, and and so there's areas where the insights of academia can help us greatly, and we're doing this. Um, I'll name one. I'll, I'll stray from the topic a bit, but for the ISIL. daesh Campaign that we're crafting for NATO's southern direction or southern flank. Um, we argue very heavily we have to bring in the European Union to address the challenges ashore, academia, and to understand the networks, business, to understand the threats against the oil infrastructure off Libya, for example. And so there's opportunities for us to do that. And in the Gulf, we do uh, SHADE, which is a maritime deconfliction um, organization that meets. It has academia and business to air these issues out to address piracy, for example. So for the challenges that have other dimensions besides military, uh, those collaborations are absolutely essential for us. Um, for the question on freedom of navigation, um, I think that uh, uh, that would be a future th- prospect that our allies, might pursue in terms of uh, other nations that have a more significant border and waters up there. I think that uh, uh, we'll continue to operate uh, with patrol aircraft in that region. We'll continue to operate the submarines that go up under the ice and, and operate in that perspective. Uh, as someone mentioned in another question, the, the hardening and the, the level of our hulls and, and ability to operate in that environment is limited. They're not designed for those waters. And that goes to the point of the communications question, uh, which came from this direction. But the, uh, a principal issue is the satellite coverage that we have and the orientation of where those satellites operate and their ability to do communications uh, from all nations. They tend to not have high polar orbits and, and bad look angles in order to have communications. And so if there were to be investments, it would be in communications infrastructure uh, either satellite or otherwise, uh, in order to provide that coverage. As com- And again, I, I believe it's going to be commercial driven. As the commercial activity goes, that will be the demand uh, as we go forward.
2: Just to piggyback on the, uh, the comms issue, um- uh, this is a huge task. The Coast Guard Arctic Strategy really has that maritime domain awareness. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the first essential <laughs> pillar. Uh, the Canadian government has uh, been working on a procurement strategy to enhance satellite communications. Right now, I mean, it is sort of the worst of all worlds. We are in, you know, in the winter months, right. flying blind, deaf. We can't have those communications that we yeah. want. The weather is a major issue. Uh, that's why uh, in the previous panel, this conversation about how technology, UAVs, and things like that, yeah. how can we start uh, having technology help us? But it's a really integrated picture. Yeah. And and the funny little thing is the the Russian satellite is much better at high latitudes than actually GPS. Right. And so that's a challenge as well. Can we make this a collaborative effort, right. uh, which would be the to maximize everything? Mm-hmm. It is a huge, huge challenge for us. And uh, I don't know if there's any good answers, but I know there's some some assessments and some studies that the government is trying to think through about how to do those public-private partnerships uh, and how to get at that question because it's just going to be increasingly important to any type of operation, whether that's search and rescue, whether that's Mm -hmm. something more significant in the future. Okay.
0: All right. right. Well, thank you uh, very much. And uh, this has been a really uh, rich uh, session. Uh, We've talked about operational trends. Um, uh, We've talked about the increased military activity and the need for notification uh, and other uh, ways of, of building um, transparency. Um, we've heard a, a thorough and subtle analysis of Russian activity and, uh, and what's observable and what, uh, what it might mean. Uh, also the allied and partner dynamics, um, unclose and the, the, the territorial claims um, as well as the financial and budgetary uh, uh, elements. So I, I want to thank uh, our keynote speaker, uh, Admiral Mark Ferguson, um, for, for your uh, great contribution uh, to this session today. Uh, I also want to thank uh, Heather, who um, as discussed into in this session, but uh, throughout the day uh, and is the driving force uh, on, uh, on Arctic issues here at CSIS. And uh, thank you to all of you for your uh, uh, very uh, insightful questions. Uh, and uh, for your participation today. So, thanks very much. Thank you.